0: God's love abounds and knows no bounds. I speak to you in the name of God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Please be seated. Early last summer, upon learning that I had become ordained as a priest, a longtime friend of mine jokingly asked me if I could now turn water into wine. After we both laughed a bit, I had to tell him no, that I could not do that. We were not taught that in seminary, nor was that part of what the bishop imparted to me when she laid hands on me and my fellow ordinands at our ordination to the priesthood. Only Jesus could do that, I told him. Somehow I think I ruined a dinner invitation that night. Now, I hate to disappoint disappoint anyone, but if you invite a priest to dinner or to a party and you run out of wine and want more, we'll have to go to the store just like everybody else. No magic hands here. We just buy it like everybody else. So to Rob and Will and my fellow clergy colleagues, I'm sorry, but I have let our secret out. But our gospel text today, that wedding at Cana and the miracle of turning water into wine, can be a perplexing miracle, a perplexing story. At the end of the first chapter of John, Nathaniel is amazed that Jesus knows him, knows the content of his character without ever having met him. Nathaniel immediately believes and becomes a disciple. Jesus replies to him that if he believes because of this, he will see even greater things. Then John the evangelist gives us the story of the wedding at Cana, and Jesus is turning water into wine. This first sign, this first miracle in John's gospel, has some people scratching their heads. Why would Jesus' first miracle take the form of what some who would jokingly or derisively call a party trick? Is this an example of something even greater? Couldn't Jesus have done something, well, more Jesus-like, something more spectacular or meaningful, like healing someone, exercising a demon, or raising someone from the dead? We know he can do these things because we know the rest of that story. But what appears to our eyes and ears as a simple miracle, transforming water into wine, is more than that. Because there are, just like in John's gospel, multiple layers of meanings in this story, and it goes much deeper than just the surface details of turning water into wine. The setting is meaningful. Weddings and banquets flowing with wine and food are scriptural metaphors of the Messianic age foretold in the Hebrew scriptures that Jesus the Messiah will usher in. We often hear it called the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, Or the age to come. Then there is the exchange between Jesus and his mother. And what seems to be a rebuke is Jesus actually telling everyone that his hour had not come, that it would only come at the direction of God, not any other person. The stone jars, which are appropriate for the Jewish purification rites, contain the water used for those rites and rituals that the guests may have done before the wedding. And then joining that, there are some Eucharistic overtones as well. The water used to purify is now wine, which we know will become the blood of Christ. that purifies our sins. Jesus makes perfect what has come before him. He is the best wine saved to last. Even the capacity of the stone jars is meaningful. It's not just that Jesus turned the water into wine. I think a cup of wine would have done that purpose quite well, would have been sufficient But he turned a large quantity, somewhere between 120 and 180 gallons, if my math is correct. Now, that's a lot of wine. Not just a cup, but 180 gallons, and more where that came from. If there had been 60 jars, they would have been filled. If there had been 600, those two would have been filled. I think we get the picture. Scholar Gallo Day, commenting on this passage notes that the abundance, or what she calls the superabundance of wine, can mean two things. One is the boundary crossing that Jesus represents, the divine coming into human form that makes this miracle possible. And they can also serve to exemplify the unlimited gifts made available through Jesus. Because what Christ makes available in is the superabundance of God's love. God's love, God's grace through Christ is that abundant. Jesus himself is an expression of God's love abounding for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Jesus' ministry proclaimed the love of God for all people. And as our presiding bishop says, if it doesn't look like love, it's not Jesus. And Jesus crossed all those boundaries in showing that love. The first infra world Jesus lived in was defined by boundaries, categorizing people and distinguishing people, rich versus poor, Jew versus Gentile, slave and free, master and servant, and the list could go on and on. Now, these categories could be just descriptors. Someone without money is poor. Someone who has money may be called rich. The danger or the sin becomes when we take these distinctions and make them into means of determining who can have God's love who has the dignity that is given to God by us, or given to God and to all of us. When we draw those lines, we are making judgments that are not ours to make about those who are in and those who are out of favor with God. Those who are on the opposite side of the line can become the other. Others are more easily vilified, more easily persecuted, excluded, denigrated. Not for who they are, but maybe more appropriately, for who they are not. And again, this may sound familiar today. I think if we take the implications of creation seriously, that we all are created in the image of God, that we are all given dignity and worth from God, that is not ours to take, and we should not try to do so. We are all children of God. That is who we are. And God's love does just, just not transcend the lines that we draw. I think most importantly and more significantly, God does not recognize the lines that we draw. Gen- Jesus' ministry on earth certainly did not recognize the boundaries that humans imposed. The greatest commandment, Jesus says, is to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus' idea of neighbor, I think we can see, crossed a lot of boundaries. As he was preparing his, for his hour to come, he gave his disciples one final command, to love each other as he has loved them and as he loves us. God's love, just like the wine at the wedding banquet, is abundant and there's more than enough for everyone else. In God's economy, God's love is not part of a zero sum game where the love given to one person is not available to another. Likewise, the love of God that we show to one person can be shown to another and to another and to another. There is no opportunity cost for sharing God's love. There is an endless supply that exceeds any level of demand. So it would seem to me that scarcity of God's love isn't the problem. I think sometimes the human supply chain is. We seem sometimes to place barriers to realizing the dignity worth in love of others by the distinctions that we make, the lines that we draw, the boundaries that we create, or the costs that we impose. The lines we draw between ourselves and others are the ones that we make, not God. Our lines can serve to exclude. We draw them when we no longer recognize in the face of another person someone like ourselves, another child of God. Tomorrow, as a nation, we remember Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. And this weekend, there have been and will continue to be remembrances of his work for racial justice and equality. And I think as Paul writes in his first letter to the Corinthians that we read today, he was surely gifted with the spirit of prophecy. And prophets come to teach, to warn, and to instruct, and to correct. As I read the text of his letter from a Birmingham jail and his I Have a Dream speech, and even his Nobel Peace Prize acceptance speech, I was struck with how prophetic his witness is to the gospel of God and God's love for us and how it calls out the lines that we drew and may continue to draw and in this instance based on race. These lines deny justice, equality, and dignity. But when we begin to recognize ourselves in the other person, we begin to heal, to reconcile, and we, get, we begin to see others as equals we begin to erase the lines that we create. I was also struck by Dr. King's witness to love, the love of God for all people. Dr. King, writing in his letter from Birmingham jail in response to being called an extremist, eloquently replied, I gradually gained a bit of satisfaction from being considered an extremist. Was not Jesus an extremist in love? He then asks other questions about whether we will follow Christ's example. The lines we create, redraw, or erase help us to answer the questions that he posed in that letter. Our challenge is to recognize these lines, the distinctions that we create that deny God's grace and love that's meant for everyone, that deny the dignity and worth that God gives everyone in creation. And this is not easy work to do, but we are called as Christians to do it still the same, Our parish mission statement even calls this out, to be a beacon of God's love. Just as we continue the work of Dr. King's witness in realizing the community that he dreamt of, we also work to realize the kingdom of God that Jesus witnessed to. As we erase the lines we draw, we all become invited guests to the wedding banquet where God's grace abounds and knows no bounds. Amen. Amen.